Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, please, please, please leave a review at iTunes. I'd be most grateful. All right, today we are talking to my professor, actually one of the most beloved professors at National College of Natural Medicine. So he was mine, uh, my gastroenterology professor back when I was in school, and many of us. Um, let me give you his background. So he, his name is Dr. Steven Sandberg Lewis, and we all called, called him Dr. SSL or SSL in school, and you might hear me use that now. Uh, but he's been a longtime naturopathic physician. He graduated in 1978 from uh, National University, my alma mater, and he's been a professor at NUNM since 1985. And he primarily focuses on gastroenterology and GI physical medicine. Uh, in addition to supervising clinical rotations, and I I actually got to work with you, um, SSL, in, in clinic rotation too, and it was such a valuable time for me. Um, he also has a practice at Eight, Heart, Eight Hearts Health and Wellness in Portland, Oregon. Um, I think he does. He, you do some consulting, and we could leave your information on our show notes, uh, SSL, for folks who want to reach out to you. Um, he's a popular international lecturer in functional medicine, uh, in functional medicine seminars, and uh, he does lots of webinars. He is, he, he's, he's um, authored or co-authored a number of different articles, and we will link to these on our show notes uh, because they're all really clinically useful pieces of content. So one is hiatal hernia syndrome. Uh, and dysbiosis has a new name, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Actually, am I reading these? So hiatal hernia syndrome, that's one article, right? Dysbiosis has a new name. That's the mm -hmm. second article. Small right. intestinal bacterial overgrowth, common but overlooked causes of IBS. That's a third article. All, all, all of them are um, just 
good articles to have access to as clinician. He's also the author of a, a medical textbook. Again, really useful. Its second edition was published in 2017, and it's Functional Gastroenterology, Assessing and Addressing the Causes of Functional Digestive Disorders. Uh, he also, he, in 2010, he co-founded the SIBO Center at NUNM, uh, which is one of only four centers in the U.S. for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth diagnosis, treatment, education, and research. In 2014, and he was named one of the top docs in Portland, not surprising. Uh, and in 2015, he was inducted into the NUNM Hall of Fame. Uh, Dr. Steven Sandberg Lewis, SSL, welcome to New Frontiers. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So, the, you know, the reason I wanted to ping you is because, well, A, you've been practicing naturopathic medicine and focusing in gastroenterology for for decades now. And, you know, I think in, it, it appears as if we're hitting some pretty tough guts these days. So I guess I'm wondering your thoughts. So, you know, you wrote the article, Dysbiosis Has a New Name. Um, we, when I was in school, you taught us we were looking at dysbiosis in, in gastroenterology. That was one of the, that was the term that we used, and now we're, look, we're, we're calling it SIBO. If I'm not mistaken, it seemed like it was, um, it's, it, it, it seemed like we were turning guts around back then a little bit more readily than some of the guts we're seeing today. So my, my first question is, can you just talk about, you know, what you've seen over the, over the years in practice? Yeah. So I, I think we're, we're talking more about small intestine bacterial overgrowth because it was ignored for a long time, the testing, breath testing for it and uh, duodenal aspirate culturing that's available for it has been around since the, the 1960s and 70s, but it, it just kind of languished. And I got reinterested in it um, around the turn of the century and started to play around with a few cases and test people. And it's just been in the last 10 or 11 years that Allison Seebecker and I have really uh, put a, a big push into trying to figure out what to do with these people and what are the underlying causes and how can we treat those and not just the symptoms. So there's, there's small intestine bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. Mm -hmm. There's small intestinal fungal overgrowth, SIFO. Mm -hmm. right. And large intestinal bacterial overgrowth, LIBO. And the, and the opposite. I mean, that's where you can right. you most commonly use the term dysbiosis. Sometimes you're missing microbes as well. Mm -hmm. uh, lately, I've been finding on, I, I tend to use culture rather than the PCR DNA testing. Uh, and lately I've been finding more and more cases where there's no growth of E. coli and often no growth of either enterobacter or uh, lactobacillus as well. well so let me, can I just, either way. Yeah, I want to just ask you a question. So dysbiosis, the term that, you know, we used as naturopathic students or, you know, one of them, uh, you, you would say that's actually large intestine bacterial overgrowth or undergrowth? Did I, did I hear you correctly? I mean, what, is, well, what would you say that that means? Or is that just an 
umbrella term for all of what you've just described? Yeah, I think it's an umbrella term. I okay. think it came, initially came from Mechnikov, yeah. who loved yogurt and treated things with that. And, and right. uh, But no, I, I just kind of think of that as a general term for either missing microbes under, under uh, uh, powering of certain key organisms or overgrowth. And it could be fungus, it could be bacteria. It, in the future, it will also be virus yes. and parasite, but we're just starting to look at those. Right, right. Let me ask you too. Yeah, I think that's a really cool point. There are quite a few um, viruses hanging out and likely we're colonizing some parasites too. What, uh, why are you opting for culture instead of PCR? I think it's because, number one, there was, when we were, when I was writing and having some help uh, writing the chapter on lab testing in my book, I think it's chapter nine, um, I was looking to see, I hadn't written about PCR testing at all in the first edition, which came out in 2000, I wrote it in 2007. So there wasn't a whole lot of that around at the time, and it was kind of brand new. So I didn't write about it at all, and I wanted to put something in there in the new the new edition because it's it's becoming so popular and available. And there was a whole journal devoted to looking at comparing PCR versus culture. And pretty much the bottom line was at that time, um, I think that it, it's cited in the, in the chapter, but the consensus at that time was that PCR is possibly the best way to test for acute uh, gastroenteritis because it's so fast and because uh, it tests so many organisms and culture is is likely best for things that are more chronic. And I hardly ever treat acutes anymore. I mean, it, if you have a three or four month waiting list, you don't see acutes very often. You see chronic cases where other docs have been scratching their heads. So that's what seems to, to make sense for me. Okay, all right, interesting. Um, all right. So just just coming back to kind of one of the big questions I wanted to talk to you about. You taught us GI physical medicine. Uh, and I don't know that that's considered by a lot of clinicians, uh, either, you know, conventionally trained MDs and DOs transitioning into functional medicine, and maybe even some NDs. This has kind of fallen off of our mental plate. Um, and other clinicians coming into the functional medicine, integrative medicine space. So can you introduce, uh, you know, us to GI physical medicine and, you know, and I know you write about it in your book, but just kind of some, what, what you're doing and what you're using it for. Sure. Yeah. So I have a, a full 20 hour elective that I teach and um, I taught it up at Bastyr also as a weekend seminar recently. And I taught it in, uh, Australia and the Gold Coast in November as a weekend seminar. And basically, I see gastroenterology as not just the contents of the gut, the, the organisms in the gut, the, the epithelial lining and the blood flow and the prostaglandins and everything and the enzymes and, and uh, acids and bases that are all involved there. But 
also it's a it, there's a physical medicine strong physical medicine component so for instance some of the two most well-known physical medicine techniques one is the hiatal hernia syndrome technique mm. it's the same for a, a true sliding hiatal hiatal hernia uh, either the syndrome which is tested functionally or the true hiatal hernia which is seen on imaging and uh those techniques have been around i learned the the basically the chiropractic version of it with a with a force pull down uh back in 1977 from dr failer um ralph failer and then in um oh what was it probably late 80s no Eighties, uh, early nineties. I studied structural integration, which is the work of Dr. Ida Rolf, mm. and uh, myofascial release. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Why? Why do we have to use this pull-down thrust chiropractic type technique? Why can't I just do it the way I do everything else in structural integration? It's so effective. And I, I've just adapted it and made a non-force technique, which seems ridiculously. Uh, simple and minimal, but it's elegant and complex at the same time and works very well, takes four to five minutes to do. And uh, it's, it's dramatic in, in what it changes. Just yesterday I had a patient come back. I saw her first time in July. She had severe reflux and a lot of chest pain and shortness of breath. And I did one treatment on her and I just saw her again yesterday. She said, you know, it's it's starting to come back and starting to hurt again. It was doing fantastic. I had no problem at all for for five months, and uh, so we did a second treatment. And that's a really common thing. And and virtually any doc can do it once you learn it. Uh, another real that's one of the big you know greatest hits of GI physical medicine. And then yeah. there's also the ileocecal valve syndrome. Uh, you know, you can, you can actually check the ileocecal valve with colonoscopy or with a smart capsule uh, by checking the, the pressure or the visual opening or, or stuck closed uh, type of appearance uh, on colonoscopy. And you can check functionally with other markers. We use um, the quads as a group, uh, strength test testing left and right. And then we also use the iliacus left and right. And then there are similar uh, myofascial releases that I've worked out. And there's lots of other ones available. Other people have worked out that can rebalance it. We also find that, for instance, a closed ileocecal valve or a hypertonic uh, ileocecal valve often has an issue at L3 and C3. So we'll do some work around the spine. Can you just give me a, can you describe what kind of clinical presentation is going to clue you in to a functional, to, to an ileocecal valve um, syndrome to, you know, to a lesion there that you need to address and also the hiatal hernia syndrome. How, what, how, how what are you, what, what are you going to be seeing? Um, what is the patient going to be presenting with to clue you in? It's actually quite a, quite a long list, but I'll try to tell you the ones I see the most. Okay. So one, of course, 
is right lower quadrant pain, chronic right lower quadrant pain. Somebody who's always getting tested to see if, if their McBurney's point is, you know, positive and uh, if they have acute excitus and then doctors just kind of throw their hands up and say, well, I don't know, I don't know, eat more fiber, do something, you know, you don't have appendicitis. Yeah. Uh, right upper quadrant pain may also be the case. And we know that there are ascending uh, cecums. Some people, their cecum is in their right upper quadrant, about 5% of the population, according to one study. So either of those on the right side. Another is tinnitus. Uh, I haven't seen tinnitus go away when I've treated the ileocecal valve that I'm aware of, but it apparently is a, can be a sign. Okay. Uh, another one is people that have sort of a viral syndrome, uh, people who have symptoms like chronic mono, uh, who always huh. feel like they're achy and sick or getting sick, but they don't really get sick. They're just always that way. Um, and I, I see that as kind of a toxicity sign due to cecoilial reflux, you know, from this cecum huh. back through the valve into the ileum causing a, a toxic response. Yeah. And perhaps SIBO as well because of the bacterial reflux. Uh, so those are some, those are some common ones. Yeah. Dizziness, that kind of flu like feeling that's chronic. A lot uh, of extra intestinal stuff that could chase you in different directions. It's so fascinating. So maybe somebody who's got, I mean, you might be looking for, um, you know, kind of Epstein-Barr reactivation, or you might be looking at some of these kind of occult co-infection, and, and, and it could actually be ileocecal, or ileocecal could be a piece of what needs to be corrected. Yeah, a, a big, a big uh, finding that we're keeping in mind these days is it, it's like the idea of uh, real estate. They talk about location, location, location. That's really a big part of, of gastroenterology for me is keeping the bugs where they belong in the right amounts right. and not having them migrate or have the stomach migrate into the chest like happens in hiatal hernia. Right. Uh, you know, all those, those kinds of barrier mechanisms. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Okay, so ileocecal, um, ileocecal valve syndrome is, well, you know, what you've just begun to outline. And again, um, as Dr. SSL mentioned, we'll link to his functional, a connection to where you can access functional gastroenterology, but he covers it there. And then, and maybe if you're teaching, you know, if you're going to be teaching a seminar that's open, you can give us a link and how we might track that down for anybody who really wants to jump in and learn it. So all these extra intestinal um, mm -hmm. symptoms, but also it could be a cause of really refractory SIBO. What about hiatal hernia syndrome? What about it in terms of uh, clue-like symptoms? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So you'll, certainly you'll have people with chronic unexplained epigastric pain, uh, you'll have people with nausea. You'll have people with loss of appetite. Uh, if you think about it, if, if you have a true hiatal hernia and you have a three centimeter stomach in the chest and then yeah. the rest of the stomach is in the abdomen, 
often these are people that get full really fast because that little stomach fills up really fast, just like someone who has a lap band. You know. Yes. And then, uh, and just nausea. Uh, uh, what other, oh, yes, there's Good. anxiety. There's anxiety. I check everyone who has anxiety for this. It only takes a few minutes to check. Uh, and there I think the issue is if you have a true hiatal hernia and you have your stomach but both above and below, sort of like a dumbbell, you know, you have a, a portion above and then, or I guess an hour glass. Uh, and we know that when people can't diaphragmatically breathe, it activates their sympathetic nervous system and they can have quite a bit of anxiety. So I always think of it with anxiety as well and shortness of breath and dyspnea on exertion and, and reflux. Those are probably some of the big ones. I guess, again, this could be, I mean, certainly just in the, I mean, a lot of people have hiatal hernias and some are really uneventful and a non-issue and others become issues significant later on. And, um, but it's another cause for real, you know, when you're doing all, you're pulling out all the steps with a good gut, gut, gut protocol and they're not getting better. I mean, this is, and I, and I think the interesting thing you pointed out to SSL and perhaps you can comment on is there's true hiatal hernia and then there's a hiatal hernia syndrome. Can you just distinguish that? Mm -hmm. So part of it is medical legal. Uh, when you're making a diagnosis, I don't call it a hiatal hernia unless I have imaging to prove it. Um, if I'm just using functional testing, then I just call it hiatal hernia syndrome, which isn't a diagnostic code. I think you can use disorder of stomach other or unspecified. But the, the other piece is that according to the literature, if you, uh, if you read, and I hope docs out there will send for the full upper endoscopy report. If your patient's had one or you referred for one, don't read the patient report, get the full report plus the biopsies. And uh, you will hardly ever see anything that says there was a one centimeter hiatal hernia because basically under two centimeters, it's rarely reported or seen. So it, they, there's thought that even on upper barium x-rays, if it's smaller than two centimeters, it may not be seen. So I think that a lot of these uh, functional ones, these hiatal hernia syndromes are just so small you can't see them, but it doesn't matter. As far as I can tell, even just the pressure at the hiatal ring of the, of the fundus of the stomach pushing up against that can cause similar symptoms. You don't actually have to have a mediastinal stomach, you know. Uh, to have some symptoms. So uh, that's why I, I check several different ways functionally for that because I don't uh, want to miss it. Yeah. In your, in your, your, you have given me some images. Um, I'll, folks, I'll, I'll put them on the show notes where you're uh, do, pre doing some of these, the, these GI uh, physical medicine techniques so you can you can see what ssl is doing and you know again we'll just put as many resources there as possible 
I wanted to also ping you on um, your approach to um, the gut-brain access. I mean, stress plays clearly a massive role in our, I mean, actually, interestingly, you just pointed out this. I mean, we tend to think of it, I think, or perhaps my habit is, you know, there's some cerebral, there's a, there's a life stressor experience, and then we see that manifesting in the gut, but you've just described hiatal hernia actually causing anxiety and, you know, ostensibly turning up kind of the sympathetic tone. Yeah. But can you, uh, yeah, so just turning that around completely. And I guess, you know, we also know, of course, that micro microbes can produce all sorts of neuroactive compounds that could probably have a similar influence. But can you just talk about that, you know, just what you're thinking about with, our, with, with regard to the gut-brain axis and just, you know, some of your interventions there beyond, um, you know, addressing a hiatal hernia? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just quickly, I would mention there's a full chapter on hiatal hernia syndrome and a full chapter on ileocecal valve syndrome in the second edition of the book for people who want to read about that more. Uh, in terms of the gut-brain axis, uh, I... I have thought about it a lot. I've lectured on it. I've written about it. And uh, I think the important thing is don't get single-minded or fooled into thinking things have to go through the blood-brain barrier to affect the brain. Um, don't think that all of the emotions and thought processes take place in the brain um, because we also, of course, have the enteric nervous system, which is sometimes called the second brain. And probably each organ has, you know, there's a cardiac uh, brain probably as well that I haven't studied as much, et cetera, et cetera. But the enteric nervous system, that's, that's where most of this is happening and we don't talk about gut feelings for nothing. Uh, it's, it's really happening in the gut. So we know that you know, at least 95% of serotonin is produced in the gut. And we know that the gut has its own special serotonin receptors that are more predominant. The, the 5-HT3 and 4 uh, serotonin receptors, whereas the brain has more of the the ones and twos and higher numbers. Um, but it's, it's important to realize you don't have to travel all the way to the brain to have these effects, yeah. but a lot of it does go that way. Short chain fatty acids can pass through. Uh, and, um, and the bugs in the gut can make neurotransmitters, um, which have their effects peripherally as well. But, um, but really, a lot of what happens with mood, energy, uh, anger, or, or uh, benevolence really occurs right there in the gut. And it has to do with neuropeptides that are produced by the epithelial, actually not by the epithelial cells, but the endo endocrine-like uh, cells, enteroendocrine cells, the EECs, that are scattered throughout the gut um, that are producing serotonin and vasoactive intestinal peptide and motilin and 
on and on, CCK, uh, secretin, you know, they're turning on digestion, but they're also having other effects. For instance, yeah. cholecystokinin uh, has effects on immunity, local immunity mm. in the gut, and it has effects on satiety and sense of, you know, when you're done eating. There, there are lots of effects. So um, we don't have to travel too far out of the gut to see the effects on the entire nervous system. And of course, there are more neurons in, this, in, in the gut or about the same number as there are in the spinal cord. It's yeah. incredibly neurologically gifted. So, so what are some interventions that you might think about? All right. So first of all, when we talked about location, 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 and numbers, we know that depression and anxiety are linked to bacterial overgrowth in the small bowel. And again, we have bacterial overgrowth that can occur in the large bowel, but there's not quite as much absorption there. We know the small yeah. intestine is designed to absorb everything and take it right to the liver, right? Yeah. Um, or through the lymphatics directly into the system. Um, so definitely you want to check your patients for hiatal hernia syndrome and, uh, you know, those kinds of things that can have direct effects on anxiety, but you also want to see if there's overgrowth, if there's overgrowth, you're going to have metabolites that number one affect digestion, digest away the microvilli and affect the disaccharidases and the histamine, uh, diamine oxidase that are produced in that, the outer uh, little uh, proximal parts of, excuse me, distal parts of the uh, microvilli uh, on the brush border. And those, if they're not there, your patient, yeah, I mean, you know, if your patient has histamine uh, sensitivity, they have a lot of emotional symptoms as well as a lot of very strong physical symptoms. Uh, if, if your patients are deficient in, uh, if their absorption is affected because of either bacterial overgrowth causing excessive uh, deconjugation and ex excessive uh, production of secondary bile acids, which bugs like to do to protect themselves, then your ability to digest uh, essential fatty acids and fat-soluble vitamins are going to be affected. That's going to have a lot of effects on the brain and the nervous system and functioning. So there are a lot of mechanisms. We could go into lots of different mechanisms, but definitely make sure the right bugs are in the right areas at the right amounts and that you don't have excessive metabolites that put a big drain on the liver and affect absorption so that you get deficiencies that lead to emotional and mental and cognitive issues. Are you using, you talk about heart rate variability and are you using that technique with your patients? I are give that to some, math? I give that to some patients. I'll use an alpha stim okay. that has been prescribed for them and I'll refer for neurofeedback, especially in patients with traumatic brain injury. And that's a, you know, uh, at our last year's, uh, in June, our SIBO symposium, and this year, uh, next weekend, 
our, our uh, symposium this year, the, the whole focus is on the underlying causes of bacterial overgrowth. Mm. And this, this year we're going to do a talk, my wife and I, on traumatic brain injury in SIBO. And it's, it's really a key thing that most doctors don't get yet. They don't get that when the brain is, sh is shaken and the, all the networks, the neural networks get reorganized, one of the first things that changes is motility in the gut and the health of the mucous membrane and the epithelial cells and the villi and the microvilli. And that happens within hours and it, it's a continuous process depending on how things go, it can get worse and worse. And that can be the beginning of digestive problems and it could, doesn't have to be a month or two months before it can take time, a uh, year or two until it fully engages and all of a sudden the patient realizes it. Um, and things like surgeries, endometriosis, appendectomies and appendicitis and perforated appendix and perforated ulcers and pancreatitis can all set up massive adhesion networks between the layers of bowel that can really affect motility and lead to bacterial overgrowth. So, and then we also know that food poisoning and traveler's diarrhea can lead to post-infectious IBS, which is another yeah. form of bacterial overgrowth. So, you know, we really have to check on the heralding events yeah. and, and, and not, not be blind to them. Uh, put that in history. You are giving us um, to post on show notes the chart of causes, and it's extremely comprehensive. Uh, so that you, so folks, please, you know, download it and think through with your patient cases. Uh, since you threw it out there, SSL, I just I, I'm really curious to hear what you're what you're doing with adhesions. Yeah, well, I. I occasionally will work on an adhesion myself with a uh -huh. patient when I find one. And what I'll do is, you know, you can do imaging for adhesions. Often you can actually feel them if you practice. And I, I uh, teach my students to add two additional things to their abdominal exam to check for adhesions. And it really, it does take some, uh, months or years of doing it until you get a really good feel for it. But one thing that I do is just kind of spread my two hands out. So my fingers create kind of a half circle and my thumbs are on the other side. And just with the umbilicus in the center, I let my fingers kind of sink down into the abdominal tissue slowly. And then I, then I rotate my hands and I just get a sense of how well do those tissues move because we're looking here for what we call mobility. Mobility is the, the ability of the organs to move with respect to each other as opposed to motility which is you know the internal movement of the bacteria and the food and the stool. So mobility is what we're checking here and then I will on females I will put my fingers on either from it's all external uh, exam, but just above the pubic, the pubic bone, I will put my fingers 
on either side of the uterus and move it laterally. And if you do that on a regular basis, you'll find that women who don't have pelvic adhesions, you can move the uterus uh, all the way to the midline. You can take the, the lateral border of it and mm. move it all, all just about all the way to the midline, both directions. Because, you know, those broad ligaments and round ligaments, they're not real tight. Mm. You, can't, you, you can't have a uterus that's fixed or, or else it would rip apart when yeah. the woman got pregnant, right? As the uterus grew. So it has to be very mobile. And when adhesions form after gonorrhea, PID of other types, uh, a ruptured ovarian cyst, an app uh, appendicitis, especially a perforated appendix, uh, chronic diverticulitis, uh, you know, recurring diverticulitis, any of those kinds of conditions, and endometriosis mm -hmm. with month mm -hmm. monthly bleeding, yeah. um, you'll find that often at least one side of the uterus won't move hardly at all. And once you're used to how it normally feels, you know, check young girls that don't have endometriosis and uh, and, and women that aren't having those kinds of problems, um, you'll really be able to tell the difference. It just feels like it's locked down, sewed in place, and just won't move like a normal uterus. And then I refer to people that do uh, visceral manipulation, do pelvic floor work, um, and can release those adhesions. It takes time. Uh, I learned this kind of palpation from Larry Wern, who... Uh, he and his wife developed the Wern technique, which is a, a, a 30 years now focused practice of physical therapy for uh, releasing abdominal adhesions, especially for the small intestine, but also for the whole pelvis and, and, and all the organs. So um, that's, that's what I do with those cases. So how often are you seeing adhesions that you think are playing a significant role? Uh, well, I, I don't know the percentage I'd say, let's see what percentage do I, do I refer for this kind of work? Probably in my practice, it's close to 20% okay. of the cases. And that's because I see the complex ones that yeah, you know, yeah. they've been looking around for something, but, yeah. but just definitely think about it. And this is talked about in chapter seven in my book in, in great detail, but think about it when those conditions have been present. So, yeah. a, and, and definitely a ruptured ovarian, uh, excuse me, a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. That's like a giant flashing light. There are adhesions, folks. You got to deal with them if the digestive problems get worse after that. And again, it could happen over months or even a year or two or three after that. Yeah. Okay, so it may not appear necessarily related, but it would post-date. Um, yeah, I find a lot of cases where it's, I, I tell the patient it's the perfect storm. So maybe they have a ruptured appendix and they're starting to have some low-grade symptoms after their appendectomy. And then uh, they get put on a proton pump inhibitor for... Oh, yeah. Right. for uh, reflux or anything else that happens above the umbilicus in standard medicine. And then, um, and then maybe they get tra traveler's diarrhea in, in Mexico or Costa Rica or India. Yeah. And then 
they're a mess. They're just really in agony and nobody knows what's going on with them. And they're just giving them Imodium or some constipation drug and, and they're, you know, they're not even functional anymore. They're going to be somebody who, if they do seek out integrative care, may be non-responsive or respond early on and feel great, but they're recurring over and over, basically. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, and these are the cases where uh, a doc will get familiar with treating SIBO in terms of herbal treatment or elemental diet or rifaximin plus a second antibiotic for constipation. And they'll treat the patient. The patient feels fantastic while they're on the treatment. They feel fantastic for maybe a week or two afterwards, and then it all comes back. And that's when you really, if you haven't already done it, you got to go back and take a full history and find out what underlying risk factors are there that are causing rapid relapse. That's so interesting. And this could, so in my practice, you know, I've had certainly enough people come to me with SIBO, you know, post food poisoning or, you know, travelers, diarrhea, SIBO. And if they're still refractory, I mean, that can be challenging enough in itself, but we could pull back the layers further and find out, you know, there's endometriosis, a history of endometriosis or any of these other causes that you're mentioning for adhesions. That's really, that's really interesting to me. Why? Yeah, what, also, why well, yeah. Let me say one more thing. Yeah. In your history there with those folks with post-infectious IBS, and of course you can diagnose that with uh, the antibody blood test mm-hmm. for vinculin and uh, cytolethal distending toxin B, those, those tests are available. Yeah. Um, the, the important thing to ask is when you finished your, you know, some doc gave them rifaxman and they felt amazing. And then you say, and then did they give you a prokinetic to take after that? Patients who have elevated antivinculin antibody or anti-CDTB antibody, they are going to be very high risk for rapid relapse because their migrating motor complex is not working properly due to those antibodies just you know attacking their interstitial cells of pahal that are sort of pacemaker nerve cells for the migrating motor complex so they need effective prokinetics whether they're herbal or prescription or a combination of the two and i also tend to treat them for autoimmunity try to bring up their Tregs so that they have less of that antibody effect. And they're going to need, you got to tell them they're going to need prokinetics of one sort or another for possibly three to five years, because that's how long it takes for those antibody levels to come down in the research. Um, Otherwise they're going to get relapsed. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. So I just want to, again, you're just, you're giving us a lot of pearls. You can get any, uh, CDTB and the antivinculin antibodies through Commonwealth. Yes, and then also Cedar Sinai. Uh, they've created a lab now that uh, we're going to learn more about next week at this symposium. But uh, it's called IBS Smart. Oh so yeah. IBS Check and there's IBS Smart. Yeah. There okay. is a third test that Quest does. That's right. Yeah. IBS Detects. I really. Nothing against Quest, but I really don't like their normal range. I find it not very helpful. Yeah, we were using it at our here in in practice for just you know 
we used it a number of times. I don't think I ever saw a positive. Um, I have seen two or three positives. Uh, I, I used it during a period of time when the IBS check wasn't available for a couple of years. But um, yeah, I would, I would more highly recommend IBS Smart, which is directly from Dr. Pimentel, or IBS Check, which he developed and then, I guess, sold to Commonwealth. So those tests, I feel like they have a much better uh, normal range, and they even give you the equivocal range, where yeah. it's not quite statistical significance, but they believe high enough that it's enough to cause changes in migrating motor complex. Okay, so three to five years. That's um, that's well, that's the that's initial that's the initial research that says that about, if I remember correctly, about half of the patients, their antibody levels will normalize within three to five years. The other half, they still are high. So I tell them it's going to be kind of a minimum, probably of three to five years that you're going to be doing this, but it helps to prevent recurrence. Yeah, right. Well, it I think that really, that's important in managing expectations that, you know, once the damage has occurred, you know, the, the, there's a, the journey is maybe long, maybe actually really, you know, years long. Yeah. What do you it, want to hear something about um, prescription prokinetics? Well, I was going to just ask you about prokinetics, what you're, what you're using in this population, what you like in general, and we might as well just jump over there and then, yeah, go ahead and make a comment on prescription. Yep. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's a long list of possible prokinetics that you can use. And on the prescription side, um, most of them have serious cardiac side effects that are very likely. Um, the one that does not, that has the lowest ultra low risk of that is prucalopride. Mm -hmm. And until about two months ago, it was not FDA approved. So we would just fax a prescription up to a reputable pharmacy in Canada and they would mail it to our patients. Uh, other brand names for, for Calipride are Resolor and Resotran in Canada for transit. And uh, FDA just approved it about two months ago and it's going to be marketed under the brand name Motegrity, which is a very cool name. Right. And yeah. uh, my, I, I think it would be fun to have bets about how many times more expensive it will be than the Canadian form. Yeah, so that's I don't know right. if we're ever going to use this. Right. That's we'll right. See. It's a little bit heartbreaking just listening to, yeah, I know. Yeah. We could it's have. Not, it's not on the market yet, but they say possibly by June or July. Well, and I know, I'm with you. I'm, yeah, I just can't even imagine what, what they're going to charge for it. Yeah, um, that's, my, that's my first choice for a prescription prokinetic for patients who have chronic constipation, methane-dominant SIBO, because it is, at, at very low doses, it's usually quite effective. And so this one has motilin receptor activity, so it affects the migrating motor complex but it also has serotonin receptor modulation activity, so it can produce a bowel movement in the large intestine. Uh, whereas some prokinetics are really focused more on the stomach emptying, gastric emptying, 
and migrating motor complex, such as the very small doses of erythromycin, which we sometimes use too. And that's a great, that's a great medicine for uh, gastroparesis. On the, on the other side, uh, the herbal, we tend to use things like Iberogast, the combination liquid from Germany, uh, often very effective and for some patients can help with constipation and, and move the large intestine as well, not for all. Uh, but it has carminative effects and uh, you know, anti-spasm effects as well. So it can help with symptoms uh, besides just uh, motility. And then we have things like D-limonene. We have our miraculous ginger, which you, know, you should think of for your patients that have a lot of nausea and vomiting, as well as uh, motility issues. And motility issues can cause that. Um, and then we have things like, there's a new one that has a combination of ginger and artichoke uh, as a upper GI motility agent. Um, and then, you know, the one company makes a product called Modal Pro, mm -hmm. which very smart. Yeah. It's, mostly, it's mostly ginger for the upper GI tract, but then they added 5-HTP, B6, and I think acetyl-L-carnitine to try to get more uh, activity, parasympathetic activity, and serotonin activity for the large gut. So these are all good options. Well, when are you going botanical versus pharmaceutical? Can you just draw, draw it along that line, or does it really just depend on... It won't, actually, tell me your decision-making. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'm thinking, like I said, I'm thinking procalipride when it's really obstinate constipation. People that say, I can't have a bowel movement unless I do something. Yeah. You know, I take... 1200 milligrams of magnesium. I won't have a bowel movement without that. Or uh, if I don't take um, some kind of uh, polyethylene glycol, um, Miralax, you know, two or three doses a day, or, um, or I have to manually go in and pull it out. Right. Um, those kind of cases. And remember too, there's rectal dysinergia, which is an outlet problem. Some people with constipation, the problem is really in their co discoordination of their rectal sphincter. And it doesn't relax when they bear down to have a bowel movement. It actually contracts. And that's, that's another pelvic floor issue that, that, that they need physical therapy for or biofeedback. But uh, those patients especially are, are often the ones that will say, I have to put my finger in there and pull out the stool because it's there and it's driving me crazy, but it won't come out. So uh, procalipride, especially good for the more serious cases of constipation, really long-term constipation, and what I like to call LLC, or lifelong constipation. You know, yeah. we see those patients, they were calcar babies, they had constipation right from the beginning, and here they are at 60, <laughs> and they're coming to see you. You're going to have to define that, a calcarb baby. <laughs> Not everybody's going to know. <laughs> oh, calcarb is a very common polycrest homeopathic remedy uh, that has uh, effects on the kind of – it's made from calcium carbonate uh, from the inner shell of the uh, – what is that? 
not the clam. Anyway, oyster shell. Oyster, yeah. And uh, uh, they tend to have, these are the kind of babies that only have one bowel movement a week or two bowel movements a week. And the moms are freaked out. Uh, right, right. Baby. But the baby, they bring in the baby and the baby's smiling and looks right in the eye, uh, yeah. stares right in your eyes. And they seem happy and they, you know, they sleep fine. Maybe they got some earaches and some runny noses, but they're basically pretty healthy and the constipation doesn't seem to bother them. As opposed to, you know, uh, a patient who has the kind of constipation where they're straining all the time. And if they miss one bowel movement, they, they want to kill everybody and they just are so uncomfortable. That's, those are other remedies like Nux Vomica. Um, but in homeopathy, but cow carb is kind of that pretty healthy, happy this, baby that doesn't have bowel movement. Yeah, but this is going to be, this is potentially somebody who's going to have chronic constipation. And so when they come to see you and they're, as, a, as an adult, you're thinking procalopride. <laughs> is that where yeah, we would well, jump well, to? Treating them home, you could treat them homeopathically first, but often I see people that have already seen a bunch of NDs and a bunch of MDs and they've, you know, they've had a lot of really good treatments that, that, that haven't necessarily worked. So it just depends. So I, I, we just have a couple more minutes. Um, I want to ask you, God, you know, I've got a lot of questions I could ask you. And I know, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, folks. I know you're coming up with questions in your own mind. You're wishing I would ask. And I, you know, the, the proceedings from the um, SIBO conferences from those the NUNM conferences that you're you've been doing for years with Allison Seibecker who and and the and and the folks that are presenting are just the top scientists but also you know in the trenches clinicians both um, medical doctors and naturopathic and other types of clinicians as well so it's just a they're just it's just a fabulous you know center of excellence the work that you guys are doing there it's, it's just so cool to Thank watch you. it unfold and evolve, you know, and the, and what the resources that you're making available to us has been there. It's a gift, you know, and we refer to them all the time in our practice. Um, but incidentally, people can access the recordings if they can't make it to the conference. And so all of these things that you're touching upon, um, anything that you can give me to put in the show notes for people who want to do a further drill down into what you've touched upon today, I would, I would love that. Um, yeah, and we, we could just quickly mention, like I said, next Saturday and Sunday, a week from tomorrow, uh, is in Portland at NUNM, is the SIBO uh, Symposium or SIBO Symposium, and uh, Dr. Pimentel will be there talking about the autoimmune component. Uh, his uh, practice partner at Cedars-Sinai is going to do an overview of motility through the entire gut and the common motility disorders and how they're treated. Uh, we're going to talk about traumatic brain injury. Others are going to talk about Parkinson's because that's a very related condition as well. Yeah. And, and, uh, and many other conditions. And then uh, the next month in April uh, is the integrative SIBO symposium in Seattle. And that has always been a good one too. That's the third year they're doing that one. So if you're if you're not if you can't hop on hop on a plane or drive over to Seattle or Portland to to attend, the proceedings are available for purchase. 
Yeah, or you can do it as a, a live webinar kind of oh, thing. Oh, they're doing a live stream. You're into that. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. Okay, so one final question. You know, there's been a, a lot of debate in our space around um, hypochlorhydria using HCL. I just wanted to ask, I mean, I think Pimental actually, um, somebody brought to my attention that he thought H HCL could actually be contraindicated in SIBO, and in my, I mean, I think in some cases it's absolutely essential, but I guess I just have a couple questions. One is how you identify what you think is likely hypochlorhydria, um, how you're addressing it, and what role, if any, do you think it's playing in SIBO? All right. Well, I got to say I have a full chapter on that too in the book, but uh, if you want to get more detail, but... Uh, we have a Heidelberg machine in our office mm. and often oh, that's handy. if you can get one doc in, in a state that a small state that has a, a Heidelberg machine, that's a great thing to have because you can directly measure uh, not just the ambient pH, but then the response to a challenge where you neutralize uh, repeatedly neutralize the stomach acid and see how long it takes to reacidify. And that can uh, detect what we call a hidden hypochlorhydria. So we rely on that quite a bit. We like to know what we're dealing with. Certainly you can also, um, in, in applied kinesiology, we use um, strength testing, excuse me, strength testing of the PEC major clavicular, the PMC. And uh, in, in applied kinesiology, it's often discussed that a bilateral weakness of the pec major clavicular is a sign of hypochlorhydria. So I'll take that under advisement when I find it. Um, I test every patient for that. But then you can go by symptoms also. Mm -hmm. um, the, the symptoms, of course, are fascinating, and I talk about that in the chapter, but we know that they, you can either have symptoms like reflux or you can have symptoms more similar to gastroparesis and delayed gastric emptying. Uh, a lot of the same symptoms that you have with Heidelberg mm. syndrome. So um, yeah, Heidelberg test is my only way that I know you can truly uh, test for sure, but you can do a titration therapeutic trial. Uh, the main thing about doing any of that and using HCL. If you know your patient has recently or um, recently enough had an upper endoscopy and they found erosive esophagitis, uh, not a good idea. First, you mm -hmm. want to heal things, mm -hmm. you know, or even a, a, a certainly acute gastritis tends to heal pretty fast, but a chronic gastritis, yes. it may not do very well with HCL, even though they need it. Yes. So, Sometimes you have to start with more uh, maybe uh, pancreatic enzymes and, and things like that. But uh, if you know your patient is achlorhydric or, or hypochlorhydric, you're eventually going to come around to doing something, either stimulating acid with bitters or if they tolerate vinegar, you know, one or two teaspoons of apple cider vinegar, as everybody knows, in water uh, before meals or or you're going to actually give them hydrochloric acid. And it just depends whether things are healed enough to be able to tolerate that and whether the lower esophageal sphincter has good enough tone to uh, not lead to reflux into the esophagus. Right. 
Yeah. Okay. That's a, the, a lot of, um, a lot of really useful information. All right. One final question, then we're going to just wrap up. Do you want me to just say what Pim Mantel said about it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to, I'd like to resolve this or at least yeah. have the habit, so, habit from you. So he's just looking at the fact that hydrogen gas, you know, if you're putting in hydrochloric acid, that's a source of hydrogen gas as well. Uh, say for instance, for, for methane producers to convert into methane, uh, or just adding to the hydrogen load if you already have overgrowth of hydrogen producers. Um, and that makes sense chemically, but at the same time, if you have hypochlorhydria or achlorhydria, your risk of rapid relapse is very high because you don't have sure. that upper gate of the small intestine uh, along with bile salts and pancreatic enzymes as that stomach acid empties uh, through the pylorus into this small bowel, it really reduces bacterial growth. It keeps it low, keeps yeah. the levels low. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a two edged sword. Yes. Yes. Well, is it, tr I mean, hydrogen's pretty dang ubiquitous. So would it actually, would, would oral, you know, exogenous HCL supplementation really meaningfully contribute to a pool that's pretty limitless? I guess that was kind of a thought that I had. Well, my, my feeling is we have to have HCL, you know, yeah. uh, yes. Jonathan Wright wrote the book, why stomach acid's good for you. It, it's essential for so many things. Yes. And the idea that you could just let it be deficient. I mean, we need, we're supposed to have a certain amount of it. So I think it belongs there. It's part of the, the ecosystem there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, as you taught us, you know, one of the very first steps in the in an immune response, you know, killing killing the organisms that we don't want around in our with stomach acid. Um, mm -hmm. All right. Well, listen, it's been just great talking to you. Thank you so much, and I appreciate your um, you know your perspective and just kind of keeping alive some approaches to um, GI presentations that you know, that we're not routinely thinking about and, um, you know, and really getting good outcome, especially for refractory uh, SIBO cases. So again, folks, go to the show notes and you'll find um, a lot of the content and links and everything that Dr. SSL and I talked about today. Um, so thanks for, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for the good work you're doing, Kara. Absolutely. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.